You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Michael Katakis is the author of Dispatches, the Vietnam Veterans Memorial, Excavating Voices, Listening to Photographs of Native Americans, Traveler, Observations from an American in Exile, and Photographs and Words Written with Dr. Chris Harden. His new book is A Thousand Shards of Glass. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you, Rick. Michael, this book looks at the America just after the 9-11 event, and you find us reacting in ways that you feel will ripple out badly. Here we are some 15 years on past that event. Why do you think that your book has proved to be so prescient in these observations? This hasn't gone away, has it? Sadly, no. It has not gone away. And the reason I think the book, sadly again, is prescient, has been prescient, is because I've paid a great deal of it attention to history. And there seems to be this recurrent theme that goes on, certainly in America. Uh, Gorbidal said that we learn nothing because we remember nothing. And I think we find ourselves today in the situation we find ourselves in, uh, mainly the war in the Middle East, the supposed war, because we never learned anything. Uh, the difference now is that 1% of the population fights the war. And the American people have moved on, which is unconscionable and immoral. When you were creating this book, you went and talked to a lot of Americans. And I wonder if you just conjure up for me what you think some of those people would say now in looking at the situation in America now. I mean, the book was, we spoke in 2014 about this book. It seems like this so much should have changed and so little has changed. Well, I wish I could find a vaccine to inoculate my fellow citizens and myself from the terrible disease we suffer from, the terrible virus, which is implacable ideologies and the inability to retain an open mind and to move on, to look at the world the way science looks at the world. I believe this then this is proven to be incorrect and wrong based upon new information, and I'm moving on. The American position for so many people is to hold on as if it was a fight to those things you once believed in. To, be, uh, to have blind faith renders you blind, and it, it stops you from evolving and moving on. For some people, it's very fearful to change what they hold close and dear. But as Voltaire said, uncertainty is an uncomfortable position and certainty a ridiculous one. And so where we find ourselves now is, are we the kind of people who are persuadable based upon the evidence to evolve and change? My view is we are not. That's a pretty scary I'd like to just talk to you a little bit about the essay you wrote about the believers. 
<laughs> yes. That seems uh, more than a little pertinent now. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, this is an idea about the scourge of faith. Oh, yes. Uh, in, in any of its forms, be it political, be it religious, it's almost as if faith, it's almost as if people have drunk from a poison chalice. And that chalice has rendered them uh, impotent to, to be able to discern even when they're ridiculous and their views that they hold so asinine that they, they would start doing what we're doing right now, laughing, <laughs> to say, well, you actually believe Mr. Trump is the person who should lead the nation holding the nuclear codes? Well, he speaks his mind. Well, so do a lot of people who talk a lot of rubbish. This is an extraordinary thing we have in America. We are, we've become a nation of idiot savants minus the savant. <laughs> <laughs> this book was first published, I think, in Australia in 2014? Uh, England and Australia, yes. Uh, American publishers said they were not interested. Could you talk about no. their, <laughs> their reaction to a book that was not kind to America? Yes. Well, they saw it as being, dare I say, oof, controversial. And I thought to myself, if people have published Gore Vidal, if they've published uh, Professor Chomsky, if th this is not new news. But what it is was coming from a very personal point of view, like the essay Dying the American Way, about my wife dying in this system in the United States. Uh, it, all of the essays come from a deeply personal place. The believers about gun control. Look, with gun control, for instance, uh, I was asking why we cannot have a rational discussion about how about if you keep your guns, but we, instead of a 90-bullet clip, we just give you 30. So if someone's crazy, they can just kill 30 people instead of 90. We can't even have a rational discussion, again, because of the terrible disease, the implacable ideologies that strangle reason, as I said in the book, and really dampen down our compassion and our intelligence. And there's no point in Whoa. With regards to gun control, one does have to remember that there's money to be made. Oh, yes. Uh, now, <clears throat> the Australian arm of Simon & Schuster is publishing this in America now? No, uh, the head of Simon & Schuster in Australia. Here's another irony. Miss <laughs> uh, uh, Lou Johnson started a new company. She left Simon & Schuster. And Lou is a force of nature. She's an extraordinary publisher uh, and person. <clears throat> and she approached me and said, I'd really like to do what American publishers won't do. I want to publish your book in the United States. Well, the idea that I would get to work with Lou Johnson again, and the irony that the only way the book gets published in the United States is through an Australian company, just filled me with incredible delight <laughs> because it did prove my point. Uh, Americans, uh, why I didn't want it released early on was because I didn't believe Americans were ready for the conversation. I still don't think they are. I think if this book gains traction, I think I'll be vilified uh, for the book. But that's all right. I think everything that I've said can be substantiated and felt by the people who read it, even the people who disagree with me. Well, I think one of the 
powers of the personal essay is that by offering us your point of view, we get to walk a mile in your shoes, so to speak. And that makes a big difference from a more abstract or theoretical argument that, say, maybe uh, you might find, say, in a Christopher Hitchens book or something where it's <clears throat> entirely reasonable but misses the personal touch. And I think that your essays bring to the personal touch both by working with your experiences, but also by talking to real Americans. And I think the conversations that you have with Americans in your travels after 9-11 are just fascinating. They are. They are. It, it, that was, I was so concerned after uh, that afternoon when I was in Montana at the time of the attacks. And I wrote a journal entry that's in the book, as you read the, where I was very concerned that we would overreact and that we would fall into a Middle Eastern quagmire, a Muslim issue that we neither understood or were equipped to handle. I'm sorry to say that's exactly what's happened. But at the time, as I drove across the country talking to Americans, I was also looking for America. And I must say, I didn't find America until I got to New York. And then I found the best of us, of what we could be. I saw people watching out for each other. I saw people not honking their horns to cre create more anxiety in New York. I find that extraordinary. Think about that. I was in New York at a time, silence. No horns going off. No people yelling or screaming in the streets. No one telling me, we got to get those people and get them. They were attending to the people who were there. They showed an extraordinary level of compassion. There was a Pakistani driver who took me, saw my press credentials, drove me all over the city, wanted to show me things, and would not accept any money from me. He wanted me to know he was an American, too. So there was a level of fear by certain groups of people in this country not to be associated with that. Now, in other parts of the country, I ran into different kinds of rhetoric. We got to get the ragheads out of this country. We got to do, you know, the typical stuff you would expect from, again, an idiot savant minus the savant. But for the most part, when I got to New York, I saw the best of us. I saw the possibilities of where we could go. That was lost. That was lost because of Mr. Bush, Dr. Cheney, and his house of horrors. And that was lost. The world was with us for a moment in time. We could have kept them close, but we chose another path and we're paying for it still. As you reflect on the world of the present that was created back then, when you were creating your prose, how do you think you're going to approach your next writing project and how much influence do you think the fact of what you wrote then and what turned out now will have on the way you approach your next writing project? I'll tell you what, <clears throat> how this has affected me. This has affected me so much. Uh, this last book, uh, The Loss of Chris, uh, watching my American fellow citizens trip and trip again and trip again and go to the lowest common denominator. You know, I don't believe this is a country. You and I have talked about this before. I don't believe the United States is a country. I believe it's a store. 
where everything is for sale. So it seems only right now that we have a salesman leading the Republican, the Republican uh, uh, campaign for the nomination for president. Uh, we have a huckster. We have a huckster. But we've been behaving like hucksters for a long time, and this has made me very sad. We can't seem to get out of this circle. So I began to think, why? Why is it we can't do this? And then, after being a guest at the Vatican, it made sense to me. You know I'm not a religious man. But I was, you know, when you're uh, sitting with someone, let's say a Catholic, and they say to you, you know, I agree with the Pope here, but I don't agree with the Pope here. I pick this, I pick that. I often thought what it would be like with Germans after World War II if they had done that at the concentration camps. Uh, or it was today in Berlin. And someone said, you know, I never agreed with what the Nazis did here, but they made the trains go very good in the economy. No one would accept that kind of rationalization or conversation. But we do every day. And I realized that if you decide to call your something, call yourself something, whatever that is, American, Catholic, whatever, you own it all. You own it all. So even though I'm a liberal American, I own it all. So I thought to myself, if I own it all, can I come to a level of reason to understand when I've made terrible mistakes and errors in my judgment, in my thought? And why would I invest in them so deeply that I can't let them go? And then I realized, I always thought when I wrote this book that one of the great problems in the world was belief. I was wrong. The problem is an absence of doubt. We're suffering from an absence of doubt, a doubt about what we believe, a doubt about our positions. The absence of doubt has really damaged the world a great deal, and my country in particular. So the next book that I'm working on now is about doubt. I don't believe you can be a moral and ethical human being unless you embrace doubt. That's the first step on the road to mor morality, not in the religious sense, but living day to day. And I think my fellow countrymen and women have to embrace doubt about so many things. I've been speaking with Michael Katakis. His new book is A Thousand Shards of Glass. Thank you for joining me, Michael. Thank you very much, Rick. Nice to see you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.